Welcome to the Littlestown Chapel podcast. Make sure to check us out on the web at littlestownchapel.org. Now, we hope you enjoy this message by Pastor Scott Morgan. A lot of us have things that keep us from moving forward spiritually. Uh, We know that we want a stronger marriage, a happier marriage, a healthier marriage, but there's things that get in the way. Maybe our pride uh, keeps us from admitting to our spouse that we've done something wrong or or that we're not willing to listen to what they have to say. Uh, Maybe it's uh, something else that's really distracting us, uh, a, a misuse of money or time instead of being together and getting closer. Maybe we're recognizing that, you know, I want to be a more godly person. I really want to grow stronger in my relationship with Christ, but I don't want to give up these habits that are holding me back. Uh, Others of us are just saying, you know, I I know that, that God gave me gifts that I could use in service, but I don't have time to use those gifts in service because I'm too busy doing other things, and, and those are priorities to me. Maybe it's, a, it's actually some sort of a hang-up that I'm afraid or I'm anxious. You know, the Bible tells us that we all have things that we struggle with that are like roadblocks that keep us from moving forward when it comes to God's plan for our lives. And that's what we're trying to talk about this uh, opening couple weeks of the, the new year is just how do we get unstuck? How do we move forward? How do we experience all of God's plan for our lives, His will for our lives, when there are these barriers, these ditches, these potholes and roadblocks that are holding us back? I, we feel like we're going, trying to move forward spiritually, but we've got the emergency brake on and it's stuck. How do I unstick it so I can actually move forward? And the truth of the matter is, is that Jesus came and he made it clear in his ministry that he came in order to set people free. And if we follow Jesus, we follow him to freedom. We can get unstuck. We can move forward if we would just follow Jesus. And even if it's something that's deep inside, like a hurt from our past, maybe someone abused us, harmed us, traumatized us in some way. And and how do we deal with that? Jesus has the ability to deal with that so that that will no longer stand in our way. But what about those of us that have habits that just are consuming time and energy and money that are wrecking our relationships? You know, those things that we just kind of by default do in order to cope with the difficult things in life. What about those habits? Maybe it's a substance that we abuse or maybe some other chemical dependency or perhaps it's pornography or gambling or eating or something else that's holding us back. What about that? Jesus is the chain breaker. He's the one that can break those habits and set us free. And then others of us are just saying, there's these things that I keep thinking about. I'm so afraid. I'm so anxious. I'm so worried, so fearful. I'm so discouraged and depressed. I'm so just angry. I'm just mad at life. Is there any hope for those kinds of hangups, those mental blocks that stand in the way? And the answer is, Jesus came to set us free from all that. But the trouble is, is so often we don't see those things as being obstacles. We often think they're normal. Those habits are just who I am. Those ways of thinking, that personality I have, those, those thoughts that I have, that's just who I am. Those hurts of my past, everybody grew up in a difficult home, me, me too. And, and those are just the way life is, and that's normal. And the thing is, is Jesus wants us to know that those things are not normal. He wants us to step out of denial and admit that we desperately need his help to change. That's hard, takes a lot of humility, but that's the first step in moving forward. But after we're admitting that we have a problem, (laughs) that we really are in need, that we really are broken and we need his healing power in our lives, we desperately need him to mend the broken relationships, to heal us from our hurts, our habits, and our hangups, to set us free, If we're really willing to acknowledge that, then what do we do? What's the next step we need to take? What do we need to do? What does it mean to follow Jesus after we admit that we really have a problem and need his help? Where do we go next? And the way, the the place you go next is coming to the conclusion that, you know what, there is a God who truly does love me, that he cares about me. I believe that God exists and that I matter to him and that he really does have the power to help me change and recover.
And then not only do I believe that that God exists, that, he, that I matter to him and that he can help me recover, but I actually then take that step, that very hard step of just saying, I'm willing to commit my life and my will to the care and control of Christ. I'm willing to surrender to him and the hope that he gives. And if you're willing to take those steps, if you're willing to do that, then truly Jesus begins the powerful work of helping us get unstuck from the things that hold us back and we can move forward and become all that he means for us to be in his plan and in his will. And so I'd like us to look at a passage of scripture where Jesus talks about what does it mean to really commit ourselves to his care and control? What does it mean that he really is for us, that he really wants to help us? What does it mean to really surrender to his hope? and allow him to begin changing us. Because you know, all of us, if we're honest, if we peel back the layers of the onion, and if we're willing to just kind of probe deeper, deeper, deeper below the surface, there's a life we're really looking for. There's something that we're really longing for. And Jesus in the passage of scripture that we're talking about says, this is what I've come to do. And this is what I can do in your life if you're willing to surrender to me and the hope that I give. And so would you please take your Bibles, let's go to the book of Luke, the gospel of Luke in the New Testament, Luke chapter 4, and we're going to start reading at verse 16, and this is actually on page 859, if you'd like to use one of the Bibles from the chair in front of you, hardback, black covered book there, and we're going to start reading on page 859, there at the bottom uh, right-hand column, bottom of the right-hand column. We're going to start at verse 16 and flip the page and then go over to verse, all the way through to verse 30. And just listen to this story about Jesus introducing himself in ministry. And he's doing it in his hometown. And you know, some of you had a, quite an experience this last holiday season. You went home and it was rather remarkable, I imagine, okay, for some of us. And um, this is what happened when Jesus went home after he'd begun his ministry, Okay. Verse 16, it says, And he, Jesus, came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, doubtless, you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. This is God's word. It's a crazy story, isn't it? (laughs) Well, you know, you think about it, wouldn't that be an exciting church service? The preacher gets up, says all kinds of remarkable things, people start talking about it, and by the end of the service, they want to kill him. (laughs) 
Jesus goes to his hometown. He's been traveling throughout northern Galilee, northern part of Israel. Read that in verses 14 and 15. And he's been preaching in the synagogues and he's been healing people and performing all these miracles. And he finally arrives in his hometown. And you can just imagine how excited Jesus is to be with his family and friends and neighbors that he grew up with and how excited they are. Wow, we've heard all these things about you, Jesus. We can't wait for you to say something at the synagogue and see the miracles that you're going to do. This is just going to be a wonderful thing. We're so glad you came back home. And yet by the end of his visit, they're so angry at him, they want to kill him. Things obviously didn't go quite the way anybody was thinking they would. I want you to notice a couple things here. Is that Jesus, and I, and I think Luke, this is what he's doing as he records this passage. And this story is told in Luke, Matthew's gospel and Mark's gospel also. But Luke is the one that goes into greater detail explaining what did Jesus read and what did he say and why do the people get so angry. What, Jesus, what Luke is doing as Jesus is speaking, he's giving a sample of the kind of message that he preached when he would visit these synagogues, these Jewish church services, so to speak. And, and then also giving a sampling of the kind of reaction that he gets because in many places the people were so excited and loved what he had to say and believed in him and trusted him and wanted to follow him. But here's an example of a group of people that didn't like what he had to say and they reacted to it and they actually resisted him and wanted to kill him in the process. And it's a reminder to us that even though Jesus is the one who's declaring this tremendous message of hope and life change, that there are some people who don't want to hear that message and they reject it. So Luke is also going to show Jesus's message and then the crowd's response and then he's going to go back to Jesus's message and he's going to go back to the crowd's response. And so we're going to see this going back and forth in this passage as well. So It's a synagogue service, and on a Saturday when you gathered at the synagogue with your your neighbors and friends at the local synagogue, you would go there, and the people would be seated in the congregation. There was a platform up in the front, and there was a large cabinet that had handwritten copies of the scrolls of Israel's scriptures, the the Pentateuch, the, the first five books of Moses, the Torah, and then also the writings of the prophets and the Psalms. And, and they would go to these different cubby holes where these scripture roles were held. And Jesus has told the attendant, the leader of the synagogue, that he wants to say something that day because often the men of the community could ask for an opportunity to read his passage and then speak and expound upon it. And Jesus, as a guest and as a hometown boy, he wants to do that. And so he goes to the attendant and says, I would like to speak. And, and when it's his turn, he goes up on the platform and he asks the attendant to give him the scroll from Isaiah the prophet, the writings of the Isaiah the prophet, what had been prophesied and written 700 years before Jesus' birth. And Jesus stands at the the, the podium, the the table there up in the front, the lectern, and he begins unrolling the scroll. And as he's unrolling the scroll, he finds chapter 61 and he begins reading there. And this is what he reads. This is the text of his sermon. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. He has poured out his Holy Spirit upon me and chosen me. That's what he's saying by anointed. He has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovering of sight to the blind and to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This is the the mission statement, so to speak, of the Messiah. That's what Isaiah is prophesying here. God has inspired him to say, this is what my servant is going to do. This is why he has come. This is ultimately what my Messiah, this this royal prophetic king that I'm sending to deliver Israel, this is what he's going to do. I'm going to put my spirit upon him. My own holy presence and power is going to come upon him. Like they would anoint oil. They would pour oil out on the heads of the prophets and kings to indicate that they had been chosen by God. Kind of like the, the inauguration ceremony of one of Israel's kings or prophets. The God has done that. The Father has done that by pouring the, the Spirit like oil on top of me. And he's given me a commission. And the commission is to announce or proclaim good news to everyone who is poor. And I've always kind of wrestled with this passage because I thought, you know, 
if I were poor, I don't know that I want good news. I'd like a good handout, maybe some money. I would like that. And so I, I've wrestled with this a little bit and just kind of reflecting on this and thinking about it this week. It, it's really better to understand this as he's giving an announcement to the poor and he's inviting them to his good news. He's inviting them to his salvation. He's inviting them to, this, to receive the things that they're really looking for and they're longing for and what they desperately need. He's inviting them to come and receive that. Now, when he's talking about the poor here, I think he's obviously talking about the poor and disenfranchised and marginalized people that don't have an ability to earn a living, that don't have an ability to pay their bills, that that are living on the street, that are poor and living day to day and, and dependent upon others for help and assistance. He's certainly referring to them in a physical sense of poverty. But even greater than that, he's referring to all of us who are spiritually impoverished, You remember Jesus in the the Sermon on the Mount, what he says in chapter 5, blessed are the poor in spirit because God is going to provide for them the kingdom of heaven. He's going to meet their needs. It's, It's when we admit our spiritual poverty that God is able to use what Jesus has done and provide for our every need in that way, what we're really longing for. We're 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 in turmoil. We desperately need His peace. We're, we're guilty and ashamed. We desperately need His forgiveness. We're far away and estranged from God and we desperately need His res- reconciliation. And that's what he's talking about here. The things that we're really longing for and looking for and need in life. This is what he's announcing and inviting those of us who are poor to come and receive. And then he gets specific and it's spelling out what he's talking about. Because he says, he sent me, sent me on a mission to proclaim liberty to the captives. To proclaim liberty to the captives. And the thing is, is that the word that he uses there for captives is the idea of somebody who's a prisoner of war and carried off into exile. Or somebody who's in exile from their home country, like the people of Israel and people of Judah were carried off into exile from their homeland to Assyria or to Babylon, to be carried far away from home, to be far away from God. And he's saying, those of you who are captive to hurts and habits and hang-ups and sin that's holding you and holding you hostage far away from me, I'm inviting you to come home. I want to set you free from that bondage and I want to bring you back. No matter what the bondage is, how deep the sin, how great the shame, how, how strong the guilt, how hard the habit is to break. I can set you free and I want to bring you home. I'm, I'm, I'm proclaiming liberty to you, freedom to you, so that you can really be my people. And, and it, as a, 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 in line with this, complementary to this, is this idea of the recovery of sight to the blind. In other words, what he's trying to say here is there's there's some people that are so bound up in their sin that they need to be brought back home. And there are other people, though, who think they're just fine, but they're really blind. And they don't see the truth of their need and their desperate situation. And I want to give them sight. There were always two types of people Jesus was working with in his ministry. Have you noticed this in his stories, his parables and and his miracles? There were the people who were the real outsiders, you know, the prostitutes, the the drunkards, the the really poor people, the the outcasts, the, the Gentiles, the tax collectors, the people who were really what we would say those people, (laughs) you know, the really filthy, rotten sinners the people who were ostracized from the religious community. And Jesus was constantly reaching out to them, the demon-possessed, the marginalized. He was constantly reaching out to them and inviting them back to God. But then he also was trying to minister to the people who were religious insiders, but they were spiritually blind, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, the righteous people. He was constantly appealing to them to come back to God and have a true relationship with God, to see that they were just as much sinners as those outcasts. They were all sinners. And Jesus came so that the blind could really see and so that the outsiders could be brought back home and set free. So that we all, wherever we were at religiously, that we could be reconciled to God and brought back home. This is, this is what Jesus says he's come to do, to proclaim liberty to those who are 
in exile and bring them home. And those who are blind, that they would see that they desperately need sight. And I'll give them that sight so that they can see reality and see all that my love and my hope has for them. I'm willing to do that. And then he says, again quoting from Isaiah, I'm willing to set at liberty those who are oppressed. And I think he's saying the same thing again, but he's just using slightly different language. Are you oppressed? Do you feel bound up by your traditions? Do you feel bound up by what society expects of you? Do you feel enslaved by your habits? Do you feel bound up and and in chains from the hurt and trauma of your past, what people did to harm you? Are you a slave to a way of thinking that you know is wrong and you wish you could break the CD that's playing in your mind over and over again, that message that you're not good enough, that you're not happy enough, you're not, you're not secure enough, that, that constant message that depresses and discourages you and binds you. I wish just somebody could shut off that machine and that record that's constantly playing. I've come to set at liberty those who are oppressed. I'm going to not just declare them free, but I'm going to make them free. And on top of all that, he says, I've come to declare the year of the Lord's favor. Literally, the acceptable or the welcome year of the Lord. That's what the word favor there means. You need to hold on to that because we're going to come back to that a little later. It's the year of God's favor. The the acceptable, the welcome year of the Lord. What he's referring to is something that's very beautiful from Israel's history. Now, I know a bunch of you have probably made a promise or a commitment to yourself, a New Year's resolution. I'm going to read through the Bible this year. Okay, anybody? I'm not going to ask for a show of hands because I might be totally wrong. Maybe nobody's, nobody's done that, but I've done that before. Maybe you've tried to do that too. And you start in Genesis and it's exciting about, you know, the creation of the world and the establishment of Abraham's family and Joseph and Jacob and all these great patriarchs. And then you get to Exodus and, you know, the people of Israel are in slavery, but God sets them free miraculously and leads them through the desert and gives them the temple and all of this really cool, fascinating stuff. And then you come to Leviticus. And some of you are laughing way way harder than you should be but but I know why you're laughing do you know why you're laughing because those of you that have tried to read through the Bible when you get to Leviticus it sounds and it is pretty tedious and boring because it's all about rules and regulations for how to do the temple worship offer a sacrifice this way except on this day and do it this way and then all this kind of stuff and you know this kind of thing and this all these very tedious technical kinds of laws in Jewish religious life. And a lot of us, because we're so far removed from that culture and we've not grown up in a Jewish family, it, it just sounds so foreign and alien to us that we, we struggle with really getting through it. But you know, the truth is, is if you persevere and you keep reading through, through Leviticus, you realize it's really one of the most beautiful books in the entire Bible because all of these rules and regulations and, and rituals and such, they actually foreshadow Jesus and what he does to save us. And so even though, yeah, you don't understand why this kind of thread and this kind of animal and why this day is better than other days and this time and that time, even though it's difficult to grasp that, it's all foreshadowing the beauty and glory of Jesus Christ and his death and sacrifice for us on the cross and the life that he means for us to be reconciled to God. And as, as, as an indication of this glory and beauty in, in Leviticus, you get to chapter 25. And in chapter 25, there are rules and regulations for a very special time in Israel's religious and social life. It's called the year of Jubilee. Now, Jubilee, let me explain what that means. The cool thing about Israel's culture and social life and religious life is that it was on a cycle of seven. And so you would work six days, and on the seventh day, there was a Sabbath day. And the idea of the Sabbath day was that you didn't work that day and everybody took a break and you would go worship and you would spend time with your family and you got to take a nap and you would eat good food and it was a celebration and it was a fun day, not a dreary, dull, boring day, but a fun day of being in the presence of the Lord and being with the people that you really care about instead of breaking your back out in the field, moving rocks and plowing fields and milking cows. And so it was supposed to be a delight Every seventh year, you were supposed to take a Sabbath. 
Your fields were supposed to rest. You didn't plant them. You let them re- rejuvenate and regain nutrients and, and rest. Be fallow for that year. And, and you were to relax from your work. I mean, who needs a week-long vacation if you can take a vacation for a year? That's terrific. Why not? And God said, I'll provide extra food for you so you can take that break. You count seven-year cycles like that? You get to 49 years? You've had six years of work and a seventh year of Sabbath? And you do that seven times? When you get to the 50th year, on the day of the Day of Atonement, the beginning of the Jewish New Year, when they would blow the trumpet indicating the beginning of that new year, that 50th year, it was declared to be the year of Jubilee. And the year of Jubilee meant that it was another big year of rest and relaxation and fun. And it was fun for several big special reasons that it would make everybody happy. If you were in debt, no matter what you owed and who you owed it to, your debts were canceled. That was the law. You didn't have to pay them. You didn't have to pay them back. Pretty cool, huh? Can you imagine your school loans that way? Can you imagine your mortgage that way? Can you imagine your car loans that way? Your credit card bills? Can you imagine that? Hey, we've decided to cancel all that. You don't owe us a thing. That was the law in the year of Jubilee. Another thing that was really cool is that there were people who sold themselves into slavery in order to pay their debts. They were so impoverished that they were slaves. On the year of Jubilee, everybody that was a slave was released. You got out of jail. You were set free. Your chains, your handcuffs were taken off and you could go home. You were free. That's pretty cool too, don't you think? That every slave was set free. And on top of all that, you can just imagine how it is, like it is in our world, that someone, maybe a family, gets a piece of land and it's been in their family, but then something happens financially, there's a calamity, maybe there's some other problem that comes up and they have to forfeit the land or they sell the land, they sell their home to pay their debts. And in the year of Jubilee, the land went back to the original owner. You got your home back. You could go back home. You weren't away from your homeland anymore. You got your home back. That's pretty exciting for anybody that's oppressed. That's exciting for anybody that's in debt. That's exciting for anybody that doesn't have a home. The year of Jubilee was a wonderful thing. So incredibly wonderful that it's an absolute tragedy that Israel never, ever celebrated Jubilee ever in their history. They weren't willing to do it. And maybe, and I'm being a little cynical here because that's a little bit of one of the hang-ups in my thinking, is that I just can't help but the wealthy landowners saying to the religious leaders, you know, I notice that the calendar says that this is the 50th year and it should be Jubilee year, but let's not do that because I would stand to lose a lot of my holdings. I would have to let a lot of my slaves free. I would have to give my land back where I've got these profitable farms. And I don't want to do that. And so they wouldn't release the debts. They wouldn't set the slaves free. They didn't give the land back. They didn't do that. They were unjust in that way. What a tragedy that Israel never had the joy of experiencing God's blessing in the year of Jubilee as a culture and society. And yet Jesus is saying as he talks about his own life there and and I, you know, as he's quoting from Isaiah 61, and he says it here in Luke chapter 4, verse 19, I've come to declare the year of the Lord's favor, the year that's acceptable, the year where God welcomes people home. I've come to declare that. That's what that year word favor, it's the idea of the year of Jubilee, the year where God welcomes the sinners back, the debtors back, the slaves are set free and they can come home. I've come to declare that. And that year of Jubilee, that imagery from Israel's history and God's design for their culture and community, that's a picture of his salvation. You come to Christ, he is our Jubilee, like Michael Card sings. He is the one who's the fulfillment of this. And when we come to Christ, we experience the freedom, the release from debt, the release from bondage, the ability to come home. That's what he offers to us 
when we come to him. In fact, it says in verse 20 that he rolled up the scroll, he gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down. Not sat back down in the crowd, but sat down in the chair up there in the front of the synagogue in order to teach and expound on the scripture that he had just read. And hear the opening words of his sermon. In verse 21, it says that verse 20, all the eyes of the whole synagogue, everybody there in the crowd, were fixed on him. You can imagine the synagogue being full because they've got this guest speaker there. And, you know, the hometown folks have come. They want to hear what Jesus has to say. Maybe people are even looking in through the windows. People are standing around the back. It's just full of people. And it says, every eye was fixed on him. And he began to say to them, and I think he's beginning to explain, start his sermon this way. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. This has come true today. Does that give you goosebumps? does me he's saying everything that you're longing for everything that you're looking for everything that you're wanting it's come true today I just read it and I'm reading this about me I'm the hope of everything that I've just read the one who sets the prisoners free the one who brings the exiles home the one who releases the debts I am the one who can provide the salvation you desperately are looking for. It's here today. Now, I'm very excited that one of my friends, a dear sister in Christ, has discovered what it means to surrender to Jesus and find out what it's like to have His grace, His power, His comfort and strength be true in her life. She's gone through a lot of heartache and hardship. And she has discovered what it really means to have Jesus be the one who is her jubilee. And I'd like you to welcome Lauren Birchmeyer as she comes up and shares with us. Welcome her today, please. God bless you, Lauren. So happy you could do this. Good morning. Uh, I'm excited to share with you all today, and thank you, Pastor Scott, for giving me this opportunity to share with all of you. Um, I'd like to open how we introduce ourselves at Celebrate Recovery. I'm Lauren Birchmeyer, and I'm a grateful believer in Jesus who's overcoming fear, anxiety, and grief over the loss of my dad and our three-and-a-half-week-old daughter, McKenna, to her heart defect. Last week, my loving husband shared with you all, and now it's the wife's turn. We use the word hope in many ways, don't we? I hope the Eagles win this afternoon. (laughs) (laughs) I hope that illness of mine will be healed. I hope I get that raise to help my family. I hope my spouse starts doing this or stopping this. It's not wrong to hope for those things, but it can turn into a hurt habit or hang up when it's the only thing we put our hope in. I've hoped in the same way. I hoped that the heart surgery would save her. It didn't. I hoped for a healthy child. It didn't happen. I hoped for the miracle that didn't come. You see, we throw around that word hope so simply, and yet it's such a huge word in the Bible when it comes to the hope in Christ and what it truly means. I've learned our hope can't just be in these earthly events. We live in a fallen world that doesn't work as God created it. I have to daily remind myself of this. I have to ask God for peace and to put my peace and hope in Christ and not in these circumstances here. Believe me, that's a daily thing. Sometimes it's a struggle, but not in the earthly treasures we have here. When you lose something so precious as your child, you can either ground, I can ground my, or we can ground ourselves in that hurt and be stuck in it, or say to God, use it. Just days after returning home uh, from CHOP in Philadelphia after losing McKenna, God gave me my life verse. Romans 15, 13. May the God of hope Fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him. He showed it to me three times in three different ways in those first few days of being home. 
He also has shown me that verse in many other ways on important days or on really hard days, like over Mother's Day weekend. I felt God speaking to me in that verse, saying, Lauren, hey girl over here, I'm the God of hope. I will provide you that hope you need to sustain you through this loss, through this grief, through this anxiety that won't leave your chest. Rest in me right now. Keep seeking me and I will give you that joy and peace you need. I see how you're trying and I'm here. Trust me. After getting this verse, I threw my hands up and I said, okay, whatever you want. Whatever you want, use me how you want. Because after you lose your child, what else is there left to lose? I surrendered to hope in that moment. And you know what God did with that? Well, he took this hurt mother who didn't even want a memorial service for her daughter. How do you celebrate? How do you talk about a life that was so short? How do you make it not so sad? He took that service for my daughter, and through him, he got me to speak up here for 20 minutes about how he had worked in that month. <laughs> I went from not wanting it to speaking on it. That's not God, I don't know what it is. And there, he sparked this hope inside of me to speak, to keep speaking, to go around and want to tell everybody, to go tell it on a mountain, to go tell it in a church or on Facebook or to my dental hygienist or even to a boat on a goat. Now, that last one is a kindergarten teacher in me. Couldn't resist. What I mean is I would go anywhere to share how God gave me hope in tragedy. Celebrate, Celebrate Recovery's principle three states, consciously choose to commit all my life and will to Christ's care and control. That's hard to do all my life, right? We can give parts, pieces, but giving all of it is really hard. This principle and many of the other steps have provided me an understanding of where my hope needs to be and how to do that. Maybe you're feeling alone this morning. Maybe you think you're the only one going through something. Maybe you're the only one who can't break something and you feel like no one would understand or you wouldn't be forgiven or you're alone. Well, I found in Celebrate Recovery, I'm not alone. I'm not alone in the fear or moments of having difficulty trusting God. Each week, I get the opportunity to sit around in a small group share with a wonderful group of women who share their innermost thoughts and struggles. As each lady speaks around the table, I hear pieces of me in each of them, even if they're going something through completely different than me. I find those thoughts of isolation or those thoughts of how dare you struggle with that really are from the enemy and not from God. I find we all struggle and we are in this together. I love how God provides others to walk your story of recovery with you. I've been given tools in Celebrate Recovery of how to grieve openly, honestly, and what to do if I want to isolate myself or step back into denial. I do have some earthly hope in this baby right here in my belly. But my daily hope that gets me through each hardship, each day of grief, is that this life is temporary. Not long, and in the long term, one day it will all be set right. God never wastes a hurt if you allow him to use it. I believe he's using his story, using our story, his story, to share what true hope in living Christ's care can do even in the darkest of circumstances. As we say in Celebrate Recovery, thanks for letting me share. Very proud of you, and I appreciate I appreciate that. So when Jesus says today, 
this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. He's saying this, that right now, in this moment, not just the day that he said that in that synagogue in Nazareth 2,000 years ago, but right now, in this moment, today, we are at the time, and Jesus Christ is the one who is our hope. So if you're grieving, if you're struggling, if you're burdened, oppressed, whatever the oppressor is, he's the one that's come to set you free. He's the one that's come to give us the acceptable year of the Lord, the year of God's favor, our jubilee, because he's come to do that. Now, you would think that somebody preaching such an exciting message would receive such a great, thrilling welcome from the church family. They would be standing up and applauding and saying, amen, preacher, preach it. You would think that they would be saying something like that. And it does say in the very next verse after Jesus said that, that all spoke well of him. Because his, they marveled at his gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And so, you know, you can't help but think that, wow, wow, listen to Jesus, man. But when they talk about his words being filled with grace, they're not saying, boy, he's a good speaker. He's very witty and organized. And boy, he held my attention through that. Not like those other guys preaching, you know. It's not how eloquent he was. It's not how interesting he was or how rapt they were in their attention because Jesus was such a great speaker. He's not talking about that. They're talking about, man, the stuff he said was so gracious. It was so filled with grace. His message, man, it's so hopeful. He's not telling us try harder, work harder, get your act together. He's not saying that like we hear a lot. We're hearing instead that if we're oppressed, he wants to set us free. If we're poor, he wants to provide for our needs. If we're exiled, he wants to bring us home. If we're blind, he wants to give us sight. That's gracious. We have to be willing to admit that we desperately need that. But even as they're saying this among themselves, they start whispering and saying some other things as well. And they say this, now, wait a minute, though. He's just Joseph's son. I mean, there's Mary across the, the hall here at the synagogue. There's his brother and his sisters there. Now, he's, he's just a hometown boy. Who does he think he is saying that he's the one that has the Spirit of the Lord poured out upon him to be our great liberator and Savior and Messiah King? Who is he to say that? He's just Joseph's son. And so they're just confused because all they can see is the surface as a man. And they're not listening to his words and they're not reflecting on it. And so they're confused and that's Often how you and I respond to Jesus when we hear his message and salvation, we're kind of confused. Do we really need that salvation? And, and how are you going to bring about this salvation in our lives? And, and why should I surrender to you? Because I don't even know that I can trust you. How do I know that you're not going to make a wreck of my life? I mean, think about what Lauren was sharing. It would be so easy for a mother who's lost her child just three weeks after birth to a heart defect and surgery that didn't go the way we were hoping it would. It would be very easy for her to say, God, forget you. I gave you an opportunity one time and you messed it up. No, I'm not going to trust you. I'm not going to hope in you. You wouldn't blame her for being confused and saying that, would you? That would be a normal human reaction. And yet she didn't. She found her hope in Christ. She surrendered to the hope that he offers. And she was willing to trust him even though her heart was broken. That somehow Christ would bring healing to that broken heart and restore the joy that she was looking for and longing for. Jesus anticipates because he's a prophet, he's able to read their collective minds and he knows what they're whispering and saying and thinking and talking among themselves. And, and he says in verse 23, doubtless you will quote to me the proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum do here in your hometown as well. That old uh, parable or, or saying a pithy proverb that they're saying, you know, physician, heal yourself. That's like us saying, put up or shut up. You, you profess, now perform. You, you, you talk it, now walk it. 
Those are the kinds of things that we say in our culture that have the same kind of meaning. You say that you're the one who's the Messiah. You say that you're the one who can set people free and and provide for the poor and and comfort the lonely and bring them home. You're the one that can say that? Well, Well, show it. Put up or shut up. Do something. And they're asking him, Jesus understands this, they're asking him to do, do miracles, do mighty works, do, do the mighty works that, that you did in Capernaum, a rival town. And, and Jesus is acknowledging, you know, they're a little jealous. You know, you did all these great miracles all throughout Galilee, especially in Capernaum. How come you don't do something miraculous here in your home? You know, show us how great you are and show us that you're the, really the Messiah, but you prove it, do a mighty work. And the other thing that Jesus realizes is not only are they jealous, but they're, they're, they're not willing to trust him. And they're making demands and they're saying, you've got to prove it to us. You've got to perform. And Jesus is not a showman. He's not a showman that just goes around doing his tricks so that people will believe. Because he understands that if you put your faith in something that's just based on tricks, these little showy miracles and things, then the, the, the faith is really shallow. What have you done for me lately? That kind of an idea is is really what Jesus is pushing against. You're going to argue, do these miracles. You're doing it because you're saying this, you're asking this because you're jealous and you want me to perform and I'm not going to perform. And so what he does though is he says, he begins to tell them about two stories that they were very familiar with from Israel's history. About how God was willing to help those who believe even when they were people that you wouldn't expect God to help. And so he, he tells this story. But in truth, I tell you, that, oh, in verse 24, he says, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. You're, you're not treating me and accepting me and what I have to say. You're rejecting me. We'll come back to that verse in just a moment. But in verse 25, he says, but in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah the prophet. When the heavens were shut up for three years and six months and a great famine came over the land and Elijah was sent to none of those widows but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And what he's talking about is a story where there was this huge, horrible famine, no food, no water, crops all dying and the land is parched and there were many widows and God sends Elijah out of the country of Israel across the way over the mountains to Phoenicia. Gentile people, the enemies of Israel to a town called Sidon. And Elijah was sent there by God to care for a widow in that town and he miraculously provided food for her and her family. And Jesus is saying, I just want you to know that during that famine, God took care of that widow, that outsider, that person you don't think that God should love and and accept or show his favor to. God was willing to do that because she believed, even though she was an outsider, someone that didn't deserve God's grace, you would say. But she believed. And in a sense, he's saying, do you believe? Your reaction to me indicates you don't. And then he tells another story just to drive the point home even harder. Because he says in verse 27, and there were many lepers. Leprosy is a skin disease where your skin just basically deteriorates and falls off. And uh, it leads to grotesque deformities. And in verse 27 it says, there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha. And none of them was cleansed, none of them was healed, but only Naaman, the Syrian. The Syrians were the enemies of Israel, and Naaman was the commander-in-chief of their armies. Elisha the prophet, who was the assistant to Elijah and his successor, Elisha was sent to heal Naaman, the enemy of Israel, the commander of the armies that could attack Israel. And God is showing his love and favor and grace to this man because he too believes just like that widow. He too, even though he's an outsider, 
Even though he's been worshiping other gods, he recognizes that only the God of Israel can help him and save him. And he cries out in faith and he asks for help and God tells him to go to the Jordan River through the prophet Elisha and he's to bathe seven times. And when he comes up out of the water the seventh time, the leprosy is gone and he has skin like a newborn baby. And Jesus is saying, the people you don't think God should be helping, that's who he's saving. And the people you think don't deserve God's grace, that's who God is gracious to. And these people that are God's enemies and God's outsiders, alienated from him, they're the ones believing on God. Do you? Will you? Will you put your faith in me? He's seeing, Jesus sees very clearly that the people in the synagogue are amazed at Jesus' teaching. And they're amazed how gracious his message is compared to all the works and self-effort that they've constantly been hearing about be more religious and work harder. But they don't have faith because all they see is Jesus is just Joseph's son. He's not the Messiah who's come to set them free. You know what it's like? It's like a prophet saying to you and I, God is showing his mercy and grace and he's saving the men who are fighting for ISIS and Al-Qaeda. They're the ones who are going to receive God's favor. And that would be so offensive for you and I to hear because they're our enemy. Those drug lords in Mexico, they're sending all those those drugs into our country, they're the ones that God is going to favor and going to bless and going to save. And that would, that would offend us. And that's what the people in the synagogue at Nazareth were thinking and feeling at that time. Because Jesus' message, even though he's kind of arguing with the people in the synagogue, his message hasn't stopped. He started out by saying, God's grace is available to you. There is something worth hoping in. I'm the one who can set you free from your burdens, your sin, your shame, your hurts, your habits, your hang-up. I'm the one that can set you free from all that. And you know what? That message of hope gets even better because he says that hope, that salvation is available today. You don't have to wait for it. You don't have to go looking for it. It's right here and it's in me. It's available now. And he's saying something else through these two stories, very powerful. This salvation is available to anyone and everyone. Even if you're a religious outsider, even if you're an enemy of God, even if you're the person that's least likely to be loved and accepted by God or his people, you are a candidate to receive the salvation and grace of God. You can be brought home. You can be reconciled to God. You can have your debt canceled, the debt you have with God canceled. You can be reconciled to him. You can be forgiven and accepted and you can come home to him no matter how far away you are and whether or not anyone else welcomes you back. God is saying, come home and find the freedom in me. That's the message of Jesus. That's the message to you and me. Remember the other thing Jesus is saying by these stories of Elijah and Elisha. The question is, these people believe, these outsiders believed. Do you? Do I? Do we trust him? And you see in verse 28 the reaction of the crowd in the synagogue. And this is where everything went down very fast. It went downhill very fast. It says, when they heard these things, all, everybody in the synagogue, everybody that had just been saying how great it was that Jesus was talking about grace, everyone who was so impressed with Jesus, so thought it was so wonderful what Jesus was saying, it says all of them, all of them, when they heard these things, they were filled with wrath. They were filled with anger. I can't stand it that he's saying that we've got to trust him. I can't stand it that he's willing to include the outsiders, the people who are our enemies. I can't stand it. We can't stand it. This is wrong. And they're so wrong that they don't just leave the synagogue and stomp off and don't come back. 
But they actually grabbed Jesus, it says in verse 29. They rose up and they seized him and they pushed him. They expelled him out of their town and they brought him to the edge of the hill on which their town was built. There was actually a cliff there, 30 to 50 feet high, and they're going to throw him off the edge. No more of, I'm not coming back to your synagogue, but we're going to kill you, preacher. (laughs) Rabbi, we don't like your message. We're going to kill you. But in verse 30, I want you to see who's really in control. Because it says, but passing through their midst, he, that is Jesus, went his way. They thought they could seize Jesus and kill him. But Jesus is the one who's in control. And he just walks right through the crowd. And it's like the river, the waters parted. And he just went through the midst and he left. And they couldn't harm him. See, this is really what's incredibly important for you and I to get. Is that at that moment, no one could kill Jesus. The only time that Jesus ever could be threatened with death was when he surrendered himself. And he voluntarily, on that Good Friday night, or rather that Thursday night, he was willing to be arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he was willing to go through a mockery of a trial, a series of trials, sham trials. And he was willing to be beaten. And he surrendered to the torture. And he surrendered to the humiliation. And he surrendered to the nails of the cross and the crown of thorns and the spear in his side. And he surrendered to all of those things. Why? So that we could be forgiven and accepted and reconciled to God. I want to point out one little thing that is very important but easy to miss in this story. In verse 19, it says that Jesus came to preach the year of God's favor. That's how our English translations say. But that word favor literally means the acceptable or welcome year of the Lord. The year when God welcomes people back. The year of jubilee. Where God welcomes the wayward sinner, the enslaved sinner, sets them free and welcomes them home. And it says in verse 25 that Jesus is a prophet who's not accepted. He's not welcomed in his hometown. He's without honor in his hometown. He's not shown favor and welcome there. Do do you see this? For you and I to be accepted by God, Jesus had to be rejected. Do you see that? He, He was willing to endure the ultimate rejection by people on the cross, suffering the judgment of God, the shame of our sins and guilt laid upon Him. He endured all of that voluntarily so that we could experience God's favor and acceptance. And so now anybody that trusts in Him can be accepted and welcomed into His family. Everything you're looking for All that you seek, the freedom, the peace, the life, the joy, the fulfillment, the purpose, all that is found in Christ who gave his life utterly rejected so that you could be fully accepted and welcomed into the family of God. And the only way that that life and forgiveness and acceptance can be yours is if you're willing to surrender to him to yield to him the people of nazareth didn't but you and i can you and i can do that today because today today is the day of salvation today is the day that we can experience his forgiveness and freedom and power in our lives and you know when we talk about today being the day of salvation it's not just the day you pray the sinner's prayer and you ask jesus to come into your heart as dan was talking about during our worship time our our singing time but today is the day of salvation when you cry out in that moment of temptation god you've got to set me free help me Today's the day of salvation when you say, you know what, the past has hurt me so bad when they did this to me. God, can you bring your healing? Today is the day of salvation when you surrender to him. In that hour of grief to cry out and say, today's the day I trust you, Lord, like Lauren did. Today's the day I trust you, Lord. 
You're my hope. And Jesus steps in to give his peace, his grace, his comfort. Does he rewind the tape and change everything and make the little baby live? No. Does he make that husband or wife that's left come back? Not necessarily. Does he give you back all that money you wasted on that habit? Not necessarily. But he's there with you. Rebuilding, restoring, healing you and I when we surrender to his hope. He's there. And he never leaves us. Are you willing to surrender to his hope? If you're not willing to surrender to his hope, you will one day surrender to your sin, your hurts, and your habits, and your hang-ups. But he has come to set you free if you're willing to trust him. Let us pray. Oh Lord, I thank you for your grace. I thank you for your goodness. And I pray that, Father in heaven, that you would work in a mighty way in our lives, that you would help us to surrender daily, moment by moment, to the salvation that you give us in Christ. I pray that we would see that this salvation is not just a one-time thing that settles a deal and opens the door for us to go to heaven, but that we would see that it's a daily salvation we experience over the hurts and habits and hang-ups of our lives. It's the process of you changing us and making us like Christ. It's, it's you helping us get unstuck and move forward. I pray, Lord, that we would surrender to you. Not fight any longer, but surrender to you, Jesus, because you're the one who sets us free. I ask and pray all these things in your name for your glory. Amen.